This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and I'm joined by my co-host, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Shalom to you. And the newly unstruck, Joshua Molina. That's right. Now I'm just out of work. (laughs) (laughs) But I could be working. By the way, was there there a moment in which you heard about the strike ending and you were like, oh man, now now it's back. Before I had an ideological reason why I'm- Yes, a little piece of me died. One, it's like, okay, I'm not gonna see my friends at picketing. Two, I don't have an excuse for why I'm not working. And three, some other thing. (laughs) (laughs) Today on the show, we're sharing a wonderful interview that we did with Israeli writer Edgar Carrot. He tells us about how he's been coping since October 7th and gives his perspective on the role of art and writing during this time. I also talked with my former sorority sister, Liel Slifer. Yes, that is a different Liel, not the Liel that co-hosts this podcast. Several of her family members were killed and abducted by Hamas on October 7th. She tells me about that experience and what she's been doing here in the U.S. to try and raise awareness. Before we get to all that, I'd like to tell you about something that I've been working on. Is that allowed? Encouraged. Please. So look, dark times call for bright lights. And I'm really proud to have been working on a Hanukkah bazaar with Tablet Magazine for many months now. But of course, since October 7th, a Jewish event, a Jewish gathering, a Jewish celebration has taken on, I think, a lot more meaning. So I'm just so proud to be to be part of this. It's on Sunday, December 3rd. It is the weekend before Hanukkah. It's in New York City at a really cool venue called Lavan. We have amazing vendors, people who do really cool Judaica, Via Maris, Atuf, Hayom Art. We have food. We have seed and mill coming. We have Schmutz, which is a really fun horseradish company. Um, we'll have jewelry from Rachie Schnee, Ariel Tidhar, and Ali Weiss and more. We have chocolates, gelt. It's just going to be really, really amazing. And I'm, I'm so excited to share this with everyone, to officially tell everyone about this and invite all of our tri-state area listeners on December 3rd. Sold. Time to cure our aching souls with, with shopping which is what we have done since time immemorial. It's called retail therapy for a reason. Look, I'm so excited to just be in a room full of Jews looking to celebrate, right? And to be proudly and publicly and defiantly Jewish. And I don't know, I feel like there's some of that Hanukkah messaging there, right? With what we're going through. And like, it goes without saying, there will be ample security, um, which is sad, but true. But it's going to be really amazing to just be in a beautiful space, with fellow Jews and those who love us. I'm sorry, is ample security the new free parking? <laughs> Just like Yes, that's how we get people in. Now with Jewish 50% events. more armed guards. <laughs> more security. I'm super, super excited. Everyone can find out more at HanukkahBazaar.com. We spell Hanukkah, H-A-N-U-K-K-A-H, the correct way of spelling it. Um, mm. Don't at me. That's how you spell it. No C-H for us. <laughs> and by the way, we'll be selling unorthodox merch. We'll have an unorthodox booth. I'll be there. Liel will be there. Josh, you will not be there, but... <laughs> These are all selling points. Stephanie will be there. <laughs> Liel will be there. And I will not. <laughs> you won't meet the actually famous one of us, but you get the other uh, two. But for $5, you could buy an argument with me. I'll argue <laughs> with you about whatever you want to argue about. You know, I mean, I'm in a pickleball group and recently Fred Savage joined. And so now I'm not even the most famous person in my pickleball group. <laughs> Just wanted to throw that out there. It's been it's been a rough week. It's been a rough week for me, too. <laughs> you might not be the most famous, but you're a very good person. Will you tell us a little bit about what you've been doing on the side? Sure. So I'm a longtime blood donor, first-time caller. Uh, my daughter, 
who is now 25 and healthy, Baruch Hashem, had open-heart surgery when she was two years old. And I was blown away by the people, the number of friends, family, and strangers who donated blood so that she might live. And so I've tried to give blood often, and I've been doing it lately for the past year or so through the Red Cross, but give anywhere. And I noticed that the Red Cross has blood donation teams. I was a member of, uh, with my college. And I asked them last time I was there, can I form my own team? And they said, yes. So now I've defected from Yale to the newly formed Josh Molina is Nice, which (laughs) I didn't think deeply about naming the... uh, (laughs) team. I just thought I'd try to make the point. And and so I'm proud to say that out of nearly 62,000 blood donating teams in the United States, (laughs) Josh Molina is Nice is currently the 48th most generous team. We've beaten the Buffalo Bills, the Yankees, Delta Airlines, Chicago Cubs. We've destroyed the Deadheads and uh, those nasty <laughs> Girl Scouts of America. So really what I'm asking is- And, and then bump Fred Savage, of course. Yeah, I don't I don't know that he gives it all. For all I know, he's Nothing. anemic. That's I don't right. want to say- <laughs> But what I'm really saying is, if you're listening and you're a blood donor or would like to be one, and you can give through the Red Cross, please download their blood app and join the Josh Molina is Nice team. Because I w- there are other people I'd like to route. We're just behind Auburn University. Boo. Clemson University is just ahead of us. There are other um, giants to be taken down. No, no. Who's who's number one? Look, we need a real enemy here. Who's number one? Unfortunately, number one is like the Red Cross. I think they've got. <laughs> I think it's a bit of a scam. I think if you don't join a team, you by default join them. So I don't know that the, I'll ever be able to. We're, uh, we're gonna take, take them down. down. But I, but it's a goal. It's a goal to shoot for. Big big blood has got to be brought down. <laughs> That's right. And we're gonna Don't do be it. Gulled by big blood, big, big red, actually. Well, this is amazing. I'm, I'm just, I'm proud to, I'm proud to co-host with you. By the way, donating platelets is two hours, granted with needles in your arms, but two hours watching. Now I can say it now that we're not on strike. Two hours of watching Netflix while you sit around, and then they give you a juice box and cookies. How's I the mean, cookie? It's what are not we terrible. Uh, there are cheeses. There are. Mm. Uh, there's fruit rolls. There are granola bars. The spread is not bad at uh, at Red Cross. That is amazing. Liel, are you that good of a person? Please top that. I'm a terrible person. Uh, I will <laughs> give blood, though, because just because I'm I'm competitive. <laughs> I just want to see Josh, Josh Molina. I do nice. like gamifying anything, even right. if it is chassidut. We can gamify chassidut. <laughs> well, it's, it comes pre-gamified. I, uh, since I have an impeccable sense of timing, I released a Jewish book three days after October 7th, which means everyone is very interested in in talking about me and my Talmud book. I've been on book tour, which means I've been visiting some of this country's most incredible and illustrious corners. I was in Miami, which is truly a lovely, lovely place. And I just want to share one experience with you. So a friend took me out to dinner at this super cool restaurant downtown. It is across the street from the dollar store you know, catty corner to a Taco Bell. It's not a fancy part of town. It's an amazing, amazing Cuban restaurant. Bunch of old dudes sitting and playing great jazz. And I'm sitting there in this restaurant and the vibe is good, but like it is really clear to me that I'm feeling uncomfortable, that that something is off, that I'm not, you're kind of like not in my element. This is something's not right. And I sit there like kind of tense and I look around and for a good like 10 or 15 minutes, 
I'm trying to figure out what is this? What am I looking at? What is making me feel so uncomfortable? And then all of a sudden it hit me. These people are happy. I was like literally completely 100% not accustomed to just being in a room full of happy, unencumbered people who, you know, are just there to dance and enjoy a good drink and a great meal and just not worry about stuff. Uh, you don't get that in New York. I certainly haven't been getting any of it for like a month. And it just like hit me like, oh, wow. Yeah, no, we've I've, I've, I've forgotten this. This is great. So Miami has. Don't this. ever go to Finland. They're really happy in Finland. Or so I read. <laughs> you know, it is funny. I was just earlier today on our weekly Beautifully Jewish Craft Along, and our guest was this woman, Jenna Short. She's a shortbread NYC. She makes these amazing, beautiful cookies that she mm. designs. They taste amazing. And she's also a yoga instructor. So at the end of our interview with her, and we were on the Zoom with, you know, like 100 people, and she did some, like, breathing with us and, like, this exercise for your wrists and your hands. And... I don't think I've been relaxed, I realized, in doing this in, like, five weeks. I think we're all just so tense and so tightly wound. Can I, can I tell you what in particular is making me really, really tense? This is something— So you look at all these, you know, pro-Hamas demonstrations, and they are incredibly well-organized. These people show up in time. They march. They have their slogans picked out. They have, like, nice signs. Everything seems like it is working. And then I am on a WhatsApp group. And it takes like three days for the WhatsApp group to disintegrate into four separate WhatsApp groups because someone's like, I thought that this WhatsApp group was only to discuss this element of the problem we're trying to solve. And if you want to discuss other elements, it is time to go to a different WhatsApp group. Do you have this? Are you now on a, like a million divergent communication groups? I have a little bit of that, yeah. It's hard to whittle it down to uh, the people who agree with everything that you agree with. <laughs> no, like even the inability to be like, okay, well, you know, I understand that this is a space where we're talking about X, but someone wants to come and share some other thing. I'll be fine. That does not exist anymore. That does not exist in our community. No. Immediately we start a new shul and have nothing to do with the old shul that we'll never set foot in. That's right. Soon we'll each have our own WhatsApp, WhatsApp group thread that only we exist on. And it just goes to ourself. Do you have 10 tables of for one? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that is depressing. <laughs> but you know what isn't depressing? The March for Israel that took place in Washington, D.C. this week. There were hundreds of thousands of people there all gathered to show their solidarity with Jews and Israel. We sent our producers, Josh and Courtney, and we're excited to share their special Across the USA dispatch from our nation's capital. My name is Tova Felchu. My Hebrew name is Tova Felchu. And my Starbucks name is Tova Felchu. What a thrill it is for me to be here. I've played big houses, but ain't never played anything like this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Wilmington, Delaware, gonna find a jelly there Looking for a dreidel in the cradle of the heartland Lots to see in Lakewood, Jersey But is a man of Shepherds down in Louisville, Kentucky North, South Carolina Looking for locks in a country diner I can say we're on our way All across the USA For the last 10 months, we've been bringing you stories of Jewish communities in America that are doing Jewish in unique ways. We were getting ready to take you to another place when the Jewish community of America decided to pack their bags and gather like they never had before. 
I'm talking about the March for Israel in Washington, D.C. this week, where Jews from across the world gathered to rally the spirits of all Jews. There were lots of speakers there, including politicians like Chuck Schumer and Richie Torres. We are here united, Democrat and Republican, House and Senate, to say we stand with Israel. We stand. We stand. We stand. Today, I'm not here only as a Bronxite. I'm not here only as a New Yorker. I am here as an American to defend one of our greatest American values, the U.S.-Israel relationship. The march was organized in part by the Jewish Federations of North America. Julie Platt, the chair of their board of trustees, put into words so many of the feelings we've all been wrestling with. I'm looking out at over 200,000 gathered here today. Thank you, thank you for coming. Today, our thoughts are with the victims and survivors of October 7th, with the innocent Israeli and Palestinians suffering because of Hamas's terror, and with the families with empty seats at the dinner table. Today, our thoughts are with the brave soldiers of Israel's defense forces as they defend the state of Israel and the Jewish people. We thank the lone soldiers serving with such courage and all the families who must display courage every day. We also thank the first responders who have shown such incredible heroism. One of them is here with us today, Yossi Landau, Commander Zakai South. Today, our thoughts are with all the Jews around the world who have been the victims of anti-Semitic hate and violence. Most of all, today, our thoughts are with the Israeli people as they seek peace and security. The voices on stage were powerful, but really, we were there to be among the hundreds of thousands gathered to listen. So Courtney and I went out to talk to some of them. Abby Forrest, University of Michigan. Talk to me about the difference between spending last year in Israel and then what's happening now. I felt really lucky that I was able to have that year in Israel because relative to what's going on now, like, it was so tame. And even when I was in Israel, I thought the things that were going on was crazy, but it's just, you know, it's all relative. Honestly, it's been nice being on campus. It's a really big Jewish community, but... It's definitely some bad, bad things. <laughs> I just, it's just really uncomfortable. You'll be like walking through like main center and you'll just kind of try to make yourself small and like move past, hope people don't like think you're Jewish when there's like big rallies going on. I see you have a necklace with, in Hebrew. Do you keep that out at school or? For some reason, once this started happening, I put like more Judaica on. I should be proud of this. So I just, yeah. You missing class for this? Yeah. I'm taking a woman film in Israel class, so my teacher was like, yeah, go to the rally. We traveled from Chicago area, Lake Zurich, Illinois. You flew in from LA? Yeah, came in this morning, took the red eye last night, came for obvious reasons, this is very important to us. It's not the Arab-Israeli conflict, it's good versus evil, this is, you know, fighting for humanity. What, we, what everyone's seen has been atrocious, has been despicable, has been, you know, otherworldly, and it's, 
it's evil and we're trying to represent represent good and humanity in the world. Came from Cleveland, did you drive, did you fly? Uh, um, we took a bus. We took a bus from... I took the JCC bus, she took the other bus. Yeah, I took the our Temple's bus. We have family in Israel, so I just want to support Israel. And I hope they're all safe? Yeah. Have you been to Israel? I went last year. What does Israel mean to you? Probably important to me because my family lives there and it's just like a meaningful place, I guess, with a lot of history. I don't really know what Israel means to me. It's just like, I know it as a place where like my culture lives and where my culture originated and like why I'm here. So my dad decided to come, so I was like, ooh, I want to come. And because like I thought it would be really cool, it would like, and it would be fun to like support my culture, support like where my family basically like culture originated. And like also I just love exercising and I thought this would be a fun way to exercise. We're Sandra and David Lehrer. I don't know these very fine people here. We're just all talking because we're all friends today. We're from Teaneck, We're here for one reason today. And that is? We want to show our appreciation to Congress for their support. We want to keep those ships there guarding our country and keeping Iran under control. President Biden said, don't, and they listened because they're there. We would like to advocate for more support of the financial aid package. And honestly, I think we all need to be together to show some love. That's what we want to do. I'm here for humanity. Uh, we're all united, Jews, Christians, everyone united against the depravity we've seen October 7th. We all have to stand together because we know if we don't, the barbarians are at the gates. And that's why I'm here. Um, my name is Lisa Fernberg. I'm from Rockville, Maryland. My sign says, um, I hold many things. My heart aches for the Palestinian people, enduring the horrific consequences of a war their hateful and illegitimate leaders brought upon them. And some Israeli leaders are shamefully perpetuating harm, contributing to the violence, and I am hurt, angry, and scared when my progressive allies forget that we are a traumatized people responding to terrorists who call for our destruction. You may criticize policy and tactics, but do not deny our humanity, our history, our fight for survival. A lot going on um, and hard to put on a sign and like to condense down into just a few words. So this was as few words as I could manage. Oh, it's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Can you tell me your name? And um, talk to me about the decision to put the kidnapped signs around you. It's keep bothering me every day. I'm waking up in the morning and I just think about them. And they're like there for like so many days now, and all the kids. I just break your heart. So my name is Zoho Zaks. I'm from uh, Milltown, New Jersey, and I'm here with my family. <laughs> I'm from Kibbutz Beit Emek in Israel. I'm here with my daughter Adi and my wife uh, Missy. Hey. And my other daughter is on her way. She's coming from uh, Illinois. I'm Didi. I'm, I'm his daughter. I came from New Jersey. Um, I was in Israel when the war started, actually. So this is very, it's very intense. And it's really, like, devastating. I was there. I was in the north, luckily. I was, so I was safe when the initial attack came. But I was staying with family there. And it was sort of just this, like, fear of not really knowing what's going to happen, um, and just being surrounded by other Israelis in Israel was, was this, like, you know that every person you see is devastated and has lost somebody or knows somebody who lost somebody, and it's just, like, there's this communal grieving that's happening, 
And then when I when I came back here, it was very different. Most of my usual community is very against Israel and and has clear opinions that are you know uninformed. I'm not in, I'm not in college anymore, but um, I'm, I'm with like a very uh, left-leaning group of people who are awesome people who I love, but a lot of them are not willing to listen about this. So it's it's been like a bit of a rift, but here it's it's just very different. It feels this, I feel like this need to defend, you know, like my, my people and my country and like all this stuff. Whereas when I was in Israel, that wasn't even, that was, wasn't even a thought. But I think most people here who are so against Israel have no idea what Israel's like. In terms of my Judaism, I'm not religious. I'd say I'm more of like an Israeli kind of Jew that's ethnically Jewish, culturally Jewish. And I feel like growing up, being Israeli was sort of a thing that I wasn't in an Israeli or Jewish community growing up. So it was something when I was a kid, I was like embarrassed about, you know, didn't talk about very much because it just was a thing that made me different and kids are like that. But as I got older I and I started to feel more pride, that's when, like when I was in college, the uh, Tree of Life shooting happened. And I was in a college that had no Jewish community, so I was completely alone. And I went to, um, they have a Jewish community now. I started it, but it's <laughs> a Coastal Carolina University. I started uh, Shalom CCU uh, oh, okay. when I was there. Yeah, I was, I was the founder of that and the president uh, until I graduated. Before the community was started, I felt very like alone in all of it and more ashamed as I noticed that people that, like my friends, have these strong views about Israel whenever it's convenient to them. Like they start to speak up whenever, it's like, oh yeah, Israel exists, that's a thing, we hate it. Like, you know, it's like, it's really privileged that you can just forget about it when it's not a thing. But anyway, I, I started to be like, really uh, careful about when I would talk about it and not ashamed, like I'm proud to like have Israeli heritage and and, Judea and uh, Jewish roots and everything. Um, but I was just scared and I hated the feeling of being ostracized and isolated. Um, so it, it like when I was in Israel, I, I felt much more like pride in all of it, just being there. But even then, I, I don't feel fully Israeli, but I don't feel fully American. It's sort of this like mixed kind of thing where I'm, where I'm both, but also not fully either. Um, but since I gotten back, it's definitely been like I'm very careful about who I talk about it with because, like I said, I'm proud, but it's just. It's really hard right now. Natalie Gerber from Los Angeles. So you guys made a big schlep out here. We did. We red-eyed in this morning. Wow. That's how are you feeling? Good. Did you sleep well on the plane? No. no. <laughs> Why did you feel like it was important to take a red eye from Los Angeles and be here? Why is it important, guys? Uh, right. And what does Daddy always say? Sometimes you just have to show up. You just have to show up, right? Yeah. What does Israel mean to you? It's like a place where you can always go vacation and we have family there. It's a safe haven. A safe haven? A place where our family can always be? Where we have family right now? I'm Ethan. I'm from Philly. How old are you? I'm 11. And what grade of school are you missing today? Six. Six. <laughs> and did you want to be here just so you can miss school or does this mean something else to you? Uh, I think it means just like being united with a lot of people. What does being Jewish mean to you? Uh, it means, I think, like just having a community that understands me. Uh, Jimmy Kitchen, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm from Pittsburgh. Oh, all right. I grew up in We're, Pittsburgh. Well, most of us are from Amazing. Pittsburgh here, yeah. So, why did you make the trip? Two big reasons. Number one, we support Israel. Number two, my daughter's in the IDFs. She is uh, in search and rescue, and she's currently stationed in the north. 
she went to the Lone Soldier program right out of uh, high school, and so she's about two years in now. These are her brothers. Yes. Talk to me about your sister being in the IDF. My name is Benjamin Kitchen. Uh, I think it's awesome that she's in the IDF. Uh, it's something really brave that she did, and I, I support Israel, so it's like this is a big thing for our family to be here. Uh, she believes very strongly what she's doing, and she's tough. <laughs> she's this tough. Sounds hokey, but does she feel all the support? Does she? I hope so. What does Israel mean to you? Israel's like a second home to me. I think it's, it's just an amazing place to be. Uh, it, it, it's horrible that people are dying and it's, it's just, it has to stop. And it, it's, it's not okay what, uh, what Hamas is doing to anyone on, any, on either side. But I think Israel's in a time of trouble and they, they just need the support of everyone they can get. Support of Israel is a moral issue. There is a right and a wrong, and so we, we, we support Israel because we're on the right side of the issue. Because of what Israel means to my children, it means that much to me too. Yeah, there's a lot of chatter sometimes, that like, what about the next generation of Jews? It looks like you're doing a great job. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> be okay. Yes. <laughs> Do you have anything to add? This is their grandmother. I'm their grandmother. Hi, Who was born in Israel. I'm good. I'm Israeli. I, I'm a child of Holocaust survivors. Nechama. Nechama I'm from Philadelphia. And Israel is very important to us. I understand how important it is. And that's what we've taught our children and our grandchildren. I've always spoken out, but since October 7th, honestly, and I should have known evil because of what my family went through, but I honestly never thought that it would be this much evil because I believe that people have the right to live and raise their families, whether they're Jewish or Palestinian. But I guess I never really saw the depth of the hate. Tyler Gregory uh, from San Francisco, uh, CEO of the JCRC in San Francisco. Um, look, our community is feeling isolated alone. We're in the most progressive part of the country. And uh, we knew it was important to bring a bunch of people from the Bay Area to DC for the rally. How many people did you bring? Over 100 that we know. I'm sure there's many more. That's incredible. Yeah. And uh, what's it like being a Jew in the Bay Area right now? It's really tough. You know, we work with parents and teachers and students, and we're hearing from kids on SF State, Stanford, Cal, that they're thinking of transferring next semester, and the kids are, you know, parents are thinking about pulling their kids out of public school and sending them to private school. It's, uh, it's really sad. We're doing everything we can to, to push back, but there's this sense of isolation and that anti-Semitism is creeping into our institutions right now. And um, what does it feel like being here as opposed to like today in this moment? It feels like being at Ben Gurion Airport, you know? When you get here, you feel this sense of safety, community, connection that we don't experience very often out there. So it's, it's great to be here. I have to agree. It felt good to be in a place where we could just be, be Jews, be proud of Israel. And while we were holding feelings of hope, we couldn't forget where we came from. Deborah Lipstadt, author, historian, and United States Special Envoy for Monitoring and Combating Antisemitism, put the events since October 7th into historical perspective and gave us a rallying cry for moving forward. 230 years ago, President George Washington reassured the Jews of Newport that our new nation would give bigotry no sanction and persecution no assistance. 
in the United States of America, the bigotry of anti-Semitism must have no place, no quarter, no haven, no home. Anti-Semitism, or more explicitly, Jew hatred, the world's longest, oldest form of prejudice, has pierced and permeated too many countries. It comes at us from all political, religious, and cultural directions. Groups that agree on nothing else agree on their suspicion and hatred of Jews. And if we needed any reminder, the past five weeks have made it plain. Today, gathered before me on this mall, are people of all faiths, beliefs, identities, and backgrounds. You are united by your abhorrence of Jew hatred and your recognition of its lethal nature. No group of Americans should have to live that way. They should live free, in need of no protection, unflinching and unafraid. Let me be clear. Do not sink to the level of those who harass you. Do not tear down posters. Do not intimidate those who disagree with you. Do not block their path or taunt them as they do to you. But do not cower. Allow no one to make you afraid. The message is built into the Jewish people's most ancient history. Jews are strongest at their broken places. The fight will be a long one, but Jews have faced such challenges before and have overcome them. You who hate this evil will prevail because this cause has justice wholly on its side. The fight will be won because there is no other option. And because, as President Washington reassured the Jews of Newport, this nation gives bigotry no sanction. And 230 years later, that still holds true. Chazak ve'ematz, be strong and of good courage. Thank you for that strength. Thank you for that courage. Thank you. As we left the rally, I was simultaneously drained and energized. Drained by the weight of all we had been thinking about, but energized by the huge crowds. There's a saying that Jews pray with their feet, and that is exactly what we did. But what's the next step? Can we continue to bring different voices, Orthodox, Reform, Conservative, Cultural, together in support of the Jewish people? We all do Jewish differently, but how do we continue to honor our nation, tradition, and faith collectively? Those are bigger questions for another day, but one thing is for sure. On a sunny day in November, on the Mall of America's capital, Jews came together like no other time in history. Now, let's get to work.
J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. On Sunday, June 9th, Liel and I will be at the Poughkeepsie Public Library. We'll be talking about our book, The Newest Jewish Encyclopedia, and all things unorthodox. You can get the link to register for that and all of our events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodox live. Our guest today is someone I have loved reading since I was, I don't know, like 16 or 17. He is one of the greatest writers in Israel today and any other day. One of one of the goats, the greatest of all times. He is Edgar Carrot, the author of many short story collections, the most recent of which is called Fly Already. If you haven't read it, it's hilarious. He joined us to talk well about how he's been doing since October 7th and the role art and writing has played for him and for all of Israel during this difficult time. Edgar Carrot, welcome back to Unorthodox. Hi, it's nice to virtually be with you. Have you been? What's what's the last month been like for you? For me, it's very difficult to break it even to weeks or to days. Well, you know, it's like you said, four weeks, like, I mean, if you would have said three or six weeks, I would probably wouldn't have noticed, you know, because it's just kind of this chunk, this lump. You know, you have a whole Substack article about how you haven't been able to write since October 7th, but you are doing so much, right? You're doing these very like clever, quirky things that do seem like these Edgar Carrot trademarks. And you're just sort of like giving these little bite-sized gifts to people all around Israel in the most charming and grassroots way. It really doesn't feel anything creative like what you're doing. It's, I'm saying I'm, 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 I'm just uh, reacting. It's like if people ask me to do stuff and I do it. It's not that I say, oh, it's just, it's like I'm saying if I meet somebody and say, oh, I wish I could write. I have so much to write. I say, I'll teach you how to write. You know, it's like, <laughs> it, it's not, nothing is my idea. I'm all out of ideas right now. So much of your writing just touches on sort of the absurd and leans into that and the, the, the porousness of real life and, and the absurdities. And it almost seems like what's happening now is just too extreme for you to process it in that charming and clever way of yours. Yeah, it's it's funny because somebody asked me what story would I write about this period. The things that came to my mind was really on some kind of a, a alternative universe where they use a human suffering as an energy source. <laughs> And basically, they keep it stable. They do war in Ukraine. They do everything, you know. And then suddenly, one of their power plants collapses. And this guy says, don't worry, I got it covered. You know, I'll do something in 17 October. Then we bomb in Gaza. Then, you know, you get as much juice as you want, you know. So, but this is the kind of stuff that comes in my mind. But I was saying in another interview that there is a Star Trek episode that is basically, for me, the story of what happened here. It was this Star Trek episode in which basically Enterprise reached those two planets that they were fighting each other for centuries. And then they, they made this system, humanic system for war, where the war is like video game. And let's say if I hit your house, then they, I, we call you and you volunteer and you commit suicide just so it will be kind of a civilized kind of war, you know, and they, that everybody will feel that they're in control. And basically, in this uh, episode, the, uh, the Enterprise disrupts this system 
And in the end of it, the two people stand in front of each other and they realize that if they want to continue the war, they will actually need to kill each other. They will need to strangle each other and hit themselves with rocks. And when you look at this moment, you say, maybe this is the turning point. Maybe this war for centuries, this is the place where it can stop just because it became too much, you know? So we here in Israel, we've been dealing with, with uh, some terrorist attacks, horrible things, babies being murdered. It happened before, you know, it's not a new thing. In Gaza, you know, Gaza had been bombed, civilians had died. This had also happened before. But what happened now is that when you when you pump up the volume, when you maximize this kind of thing, and it becomes unbearable, then I think that maybe this could be the healing point or the turning point. And when you look at the past uh, two decades, you really see this kind of a symbiotic relationship between Hamas and Netanyahu. By the way, you know, in 95, uh, after Rabin was was uh, assassinated and they had the election, then the election were in 96 and Shimon Perez was leading against Netanyahu. And then Hamas constantly did terrorist attack on bombs that really hurt Perez' cause. And then at some stage, you know, Netanyahu passed Shimon Perez, he got elected. And since then, I don't remember so much Hamas bombings in Tel Aviv. It's really like, I'm, I feel that the new status quo was maybe in a sense a better one. You know, when you have a prime minister that doesn't want a Palestinian state and a terrorist organization that also doesn't want a Palestinian state because it wants uh, some kind of an Islamic uh, unity of uh, of countries or it want to become a superpower, then I'm saying then it's a safe bet that nothing good is going to happen. And the fact that they contained it into those little rounds where we shoot them a little, they shoot us a little, they kill a few of us, we kill some of them. And they indoctrinated us that this is the normal way, that this is how you do it. It will not get any better. So now that it got worse, you know, then maybe it's a really good chance to reboot to a new Middle East, you know, if it will be without Hamas and without Netanyahu, I think we have a chance. Ooh, a vision of the future with some hope. I've been a fan of yours since uh, the Nimrod flip out. Incredible collection of uh, short stories of yours. What is it like to be part of the Israeli left, intellectual and political, with problems with Netanyahu as you now have to watch him lead the war effort in the response to October 7th? It's really, it's really difficult. And I can say that it's difficult in many aspects. First, I want to say that I think that the people who took the strongest hit on the 7th of October were really the moderate Palestinians and Israelis. Every person that was able to exercise any kind of ambiguity, it's kind of, it, it became irrelevant. You know, it's really like, I mean, it's really all the people that I knew, some of the people that I used to go and demonstrate with them, they are now uh, getting firearms. You know, because they're afraid that somebody will come and massacre them. You know, it's really like a Palestinians that I knew with Israeli ideas that we would meet in working place. They rather not come because they say, you know, maybe somebody will think that, I don't know, that we're sympathizers with the attack. You know, it's really like the, the idea is that uh, that everything becomes more kind of simplistic and uh, and phobic. And I think that uh, that this was really like also a big hit to this kind of effort because I think that many times in political conflicts, you go through some kind of a process 
And the process was that left-wingers uh, want to have this two-state solution in which all the di- disputed occupied territories will be given to Palestinians. But basically, the attack on the 7th of October were on kibbutzes in the 48th border, mostly inhabited by people who are in the left wing and very supportive of peace initiatives. And the other attack, the only attack that wasn't in those kibbutzes or, you know, in this area was on a on a rave party with thousands, they do a party for peace and friendship. So it's strange because I, I'm saying that as a left-winger, I'm used to the fact that when there is this collateral damage among civilians, it's usually the people in the territories. And uh, it's not that uh, I don't know a couple of people in the territories, but here it kind of hit the home base, the people that got killed, the people that got wounded, the people... They are really the people that I know, the the guy who edits my op-eds, you know, in the newspaper, three of his uh, family members are murdered, seven of them are kidnapped, you know. And so we are the kind of people that usually talk about what happens, you know, in Judea and Samaria or what happened in one settlement or another. And suddenly uh, this was really close to home. This was all around us. I was... Uh... As, as my co-host would attest, you know, pretty decent Netanyahu, not fan, but supporter, uh, very kind of open, very critical of the protest. Yeah. He has to go right the fuck now. Yeah. Like, right the fuck now. And and everyone with him, too. And I think the next batch coming up is going to be a much finer batch of humans. I, I once saw a documentary about Ehud Barak, uh, not uh, so much the politician, but the general and stuff. And they asked him about uh, something about uh, was it had been won and was it had been lost. And he said something that stuck with me and that I remembered uh, again now. He said uh, the mistake that people make is that they decide uh, who won at the end of the war. You should check it 10 years later. Right. And then he gave two examples. He gave the 73 war that was really like the war in which Israel was surprised and lost and got hit. And he said, within, you know, 10 years, we had peace with Egypt. After that, peace with Jordan. Basically, the 73 war was the best thing for Israeli safety in a long time. And he says, and look at the 67 war. We took out all those armies in six days. But when you look at it in perspective of time, we got the occupied territories. We got stuck with the problem. So so I'm saying along that line that somehow in a strange way, when horrible things happen, we kind of wake up, we make a shift and a change. And I think that, that uh, this is the wake up call war. And we're very good when we're awake. We're very good at uh, solving problems and achieving goals. Inshallah. Inshallah. So look, under the best circumstances, those of us cursed with a compulsive desire to write know that this is not an easy thing to do. What is it like writing thesis. Could you, could you write? Could you get yourself to sit down under these conditions with war raging all about and, and actually string sentences together? Well, I can say that, you know, I began writing a day after my best friend who had shot himself died in my arms, you know, so I don't have to go to a resort in Switzerland and have a, a super good mood to write. You know, I think that the way I see writing, it's like a, this airbag between you and reality is that when the word is too much, then 
you put your writing in the middle and it kind of pushes the word away and also kind of clarifies what you want and creates some kind of a bridge between, I don't know, your sweaty entity and everything outside there. All my life, I always wrote, you know, like in the, in times of the wars and in the, when it was COVID and all, everybody said, oh, I can't write, I can't write. I would patronize people and say, oh, why are you in your home, you know, next to the computer? Do you have anything better to do? And I think that this is the first time in my writing life that I, I really find it uh, impossible to write uh, simply because I'm not sure that I know how I feel and that I know what I feel. So if there's something about writing that it kind of articulates something that you, you that was inside you, but you couldn't put in words. And right now, I'm not sure that this thing exists, you know? Well, we're going to resolve it all right here, right now. Uh, you can move to the couch if you want. You could lie down. <laughs> we're going to talk about your feelings because I think I think it matters. Look, a, a lot of us thought the world was a very different place on October 6th than, than we understand it is now. So we're obviously not asking for for a grand analysis of uh, of, of history and feelings, but 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 what are some things that you're really surprised or mad or heartbroken to be feeling and thinking about now, other than the obvious, you know, intolerable weight of so much barbarism and murder? What's very uh, difficult for me is that for the past, I don't know, fifty six years, I'm always curious. I always like to listen, but I have a very strong standing. If you would ask me, should I buy this car, you know, should I get married, should I move to Israel? I always give you a very, very kind of a strong answer. And what I feel right now is that a lot of my vain intuitions are kind of gone. And it's strange because I do feel that in essence, there's nothing new here in the Middle East. It's really like it's the ingredients that we've already known. But it's uh, this uh, excess and this kind of extremity of it that uh, is really overwhelming. It's really like, you know, even I would tell you interaction with people, you know, I can tell you that in the past months, people text me and they ask me all kinds of things. And usually if I can, I do the things that they ask me, you know, but uh, if I would be in my right mind, many of those things I wouldn't do, you know, it's just that because I say, oh, I don't know. Okay, this guy, okay, I'm making you a movie where I'm saying that I'm the nephew of Adolf Hitler. Okay, I'll make you this little drawing. Yeah, hey, I'm going, yeah, I'm going, sir. I'm coming here. Who are you? You know, it's like this kind of feeling that uh, I react uh, much more emotionally to things that I, I believe that I can give than that I even try to kind of rationalize what exactly I'm doing. And and the interactions that I have, you know, the interactions that are quirky and heartbreaking and strange, you know, it's really, it just, yesterday I had a talk with this uh, wonderful family, a brother and a sister. They lost their brother in the 7th of October. He was a soldier. So they say there are so many people dead, you know, and there's such huge tragedy. And he was a brave soldier, just another brave soldier. And they were thinking, what can we do so people will notice him, will understand that he's gone. And then they said, we talked to a friend. He said, you must lock a famous author or a celebrity. So through this, you, people can notice that, that he was there. And then I said, okay, you locked me. <laughs> what do you want to do? 
and they were just silent. And they, I said, okay, like we'll think together what we want to do. But but this idea is that that you kind of uh, you have this sense of urgency and you you run and you, you want to do something, but everything is such a an emotional mess that that what they do, what I do, I'm not sure that it's that functional. I heard somewhere that Kibbutz Be'eri, which lost famously, I think, more than more than half of its uh, members, had this tradition of writing very intricate eulogies, right, for for members. And now that so many had gone, they ask for every writer or every Israeli who could interview the families and and come and help with these eulogies. Something like this, if we think about how this is uh, already changing and will impact. Israeli literature moving forward. I, I, you know, I, the truth is that right now it's like a, a, I can't see much to the future. But I wanted to say about the Beiri request for eulogy that this was the only thing that I was asked this month that I didn't do <laughs> because I really felt that there, that there is something about my writing style that it's not good in summing up things or hmm. creating some romantic or pathos thing around it. Like I said to them, look, if I can sit with the family for a long time, if I, I can look at all the photos, maybe I can do something. But I, I'm not a professional writer. I don't know how to build up things. And the, my wife did it and my editor did it. I'm basically the only person I know that didn't do that. And I and I felt a little bad about it. But but this standard talent that I don't have, I just have a weird talent instead. And, ah. and I've been thinking, you know, that I've been very active in the social protest against the, of Netanyahu trying to take down the Supreme Court. And uh, I had the, a sign that I held that became uh, really, really viral. And in the sign, it said, uh, uh, I used to write stories. Now I write signs. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, I used to write stories, then I wrote signs, you know, now we're writing eulogies, you know, it's really, it kind of feel like you're falling from a very high place and the floor is getting nearer, you know, it's really like, it's not the stuff that art is about, you know, there's something about art, it's kind of closing your eyes and falling backward and thinking that something wonderful will catch you, you know, right now you use, I don't know, art to to, to make chicken soup, you know, it's like everything is so kind of pragmatic. Everything is broken to those kind of talents. Ah, you know how to say a nice sentence. Can you find me a good metaphor? You know, it's really like a, you became this kind of a plumber of words, you know, not somebody who kind of seeks some kind of a deep meaning. It's funny to hear you say, I'm not a professional writer. <laughs> That's a great quote. So, you know, we don't think that this conversation is depressing enough. So, so we want to, we want to kick it up a notch and, uh, <laughs> and also note that just before this started, um, you lost your father-in-law, the late great Jonathan Geffen. Yes. 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 It's really like, I mean, it's as if I'm not taking some kind of a hint, you know, because it was like, there was the COVID. Then after the COVID, they said, oh, I want the COVID over. And then Netanyahu got elected and they started basically dismantling the Israeli democracy. And they said, oh, you know, I don't want that. They said, okay, so would you want to have war? Okay, you know. And on the way, I lost my father-in-law and I lost Meir Shalev, a great, great writer and a friend of mine. Basically, I lost both of them in a week. And I also have a disc hernia. <laughs> <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> And I'm short. I'm short. <laughs> now this begs the most, the most urgent question. Okay, so what do you do? What, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis to kind of 
stay stay safe. Uh, our our parlance in in Americanese is, what's your self care routine? I love this term. What I really try to do is uh, to do things that will make me feel useful. So I'm saying, really, is our kind of embarrassing thing. I'm uh, making those videos for soldiers who have birthdays, you know, kind of, and send them videos, Beautiful. you know. I'm trying to teach by phone some creative writing course to a girl I met that lost her father in one of those kibbutzes. I'm doing this little uh, a Shabbat story club where I send all kinds of people that I met along the way in those kibbutzes or soldiers that were interested in my work and I'm sending them a new, new relatively or unpublished stories of mine or all kinds of text every Shabbat. I, and uh, I'm going to give a, a creative writing workshop to soldiers basically in Gaza, 500 meters from Gaza, you know? So I don't know. I'm, I'm ba- I feel that there is something very passive about me. You know, there are all kinds of people around me who have wonderful initiatives. I'm just the guy who argues with some European uh, journalist and then needs to get him snuff movies through a third party in Telegram so he'll believe me that people were beheaded. You know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm really uh, just reacting. I'm not, I don't know who I am or what I do. If you ask me to make you coffee, I happily will. Eckar, where is the best way we can be following along with you? Is that on Substack these days? I have the Substack column that I, I publish every week, but but the truth is that I'm not doing that much. It's like, I mean, it's funny because I think that when you do those events, you're supposed to put them on Facebook, but really all the events that I'm going, it's other people that, you know, that they are so miserable that they wouldn't want to be shot right. or or they're in some place where you're not supposed to shoot it because I don't know. It's So it's basically, I'm just, I'm kind of running around. So if you come to Israel, you bump into me in 10 minutes, I'm sure. You're just existing, basically, That's right? You're not like <laughs> putting the pictures here so we could see it and posting the things. Yeah, um, yeah. It's kind of pure. It's kind of like, I mean, it. I, I would post things if I would have things worth posting, you know? I mean, if I would convince Yichie uh, Senoir, you know, to convert to Judaism, I will post and share. <laughs> but uh, but until then, you know, it's really, you know, it's basically, I don't know, driving from places to places and talking to people. But I read that you don't drive. Uh, I don't drive. I don't drive. That's, uh, and that's, that's really, I, I think that the epiphany of the 7th of October was really this kind of idea that all my life I had a driving license and really didn't know how to drive. And thought that it was so cool that girls on dates would drive me around and that everybody would notice and pamper me. You know, it's like kind of not knowing how to drive. It's like being allergic to something, to being allergic to peanuts. Everybody's saying, mm. where is Edgar? Where is Edgar? You're the, you're the peanuts guy? Yeah. Oh, we made a special dessert for you. And you just feel special huh. and blessed all the time. And suddenly on the, on the 7th of October, I said, oh my God, like, you know, if I could drive a car, you know, I could take people away from danger where they need to go. Mm. And it stopped being sexy, you know, in a minute. All these things that I was so proud of, you know, it just became like a, a disadvantage. Ekar, we are thinking of you. And we're so grateful for everything that you're doing for everyone in your community. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And next time, in person, live. Yes, yeah, soon we'll do this in person. God willing. 
Hi, it's Abby Pogrebin back with another episode of The Minion, a roundtable discussion on tablet about the state of the American Jewish community. No experts, just people. This time, I talked with 10 Black Jewish Americans. Here's some of what they had to say. A lot of times when people are curious about being a Black Jew in America, it can feel very uncomfortable to just feel like you're in an interview when you're supposed to be at a Shabbos meal or when you're at, you know, I don't know, a birthday party or wherever you might find yourself. You're davening on Yom Kippur and you're like, I'm just really thirsty and now I have to explain who I am. I think that's the exhaustion. I think when there's mutual vulnerability and mutual sharing, it doesn't feel as uncomfortable or uncomfortable at all. It can feel very comfortable for me to tell my story in the right setting. I've often had the police called on me when approaching a synagogue. The lights and everything, uh, very traumatizing. And just even talking to people who know who I am, who've read things that I've written, I still get those same questions about like, oh, so you're Jewish. What happened, right? Or in college, when a professor, a Jewish professor asked me, um, I heard that you're Jewish, how did that happen? You know, and I said, my response to him, because I have a long list of crass responses, uh, was just, my parents had really great sex, how about yours? I come from a very religious Black family, and going to church on Sunday and being a Christian, like, Blackness is, like, equated to Christianity. I mean, and, and I, I, I distinctly feel that a lot of them don't even feel that I'm Black because I am Jewish. Uh, they, they equate Jesus with Blackness. just struck by the awe that's induced by the capacity of Judaism to expand, to hold all of these different realities and definitions of not only what it is to be Jewish, but the specificity of experience of each one of us who have a Black Jewish identity in common, but means something unique and and beautiful to each one of us. Check out the latest Minion at tabletmag.com slash Minion. in my life is Liel Slifer. She was my Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority sister at Duke and through a very complex game of Jewish geography has stayed in my life since then and is now actually technically related to me. Sadly, several of her family members were taken hostage and killed during the Hamas attack on October 7th. And since then, Liel, who is based in Dallas, has been doing amazing work to spread awareness about what's going on in Israel right now. She's also dealing with, of course, the deep trauma of having family members killed and whose whereabouts are unknown right now, all the while 
caring for her own family here. So I really just wanted to, to talk to her and see how she was doing. And she graciously agreed to come on the show and talk with me. Liel Slifer, welcome to Unorthodox. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. So you're actually the first Liel in my life. And I think about this a lot. You and I probably met in like 2006 in Durham, North Carolina, mm-hmm. when I joined the Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority. <laughs> I don't know that we knew that this would always come full circle, but it is funny that we've known each other a very, very, very long time. A very long time. You went to law school with my sister, mm-hmm. and that was like another funny connection. And now we're basically kind of almost related, right? Correct. We are mishpacha. Your husband is my mom's first cousin's nephew. Correct. Your Aunt Janet is also my Aunt Janet now. I feel like I need to tell you this. I had no idea that you were Jewish, that you were Israeli when we were in college together. Is that crazy? I had no idea that there were any other Jews in Kappa, to be honest. I think about this a lot now because of what it looks like to be Jewish on college campuses today, right? Like you're super engaged. Like you have to know all of this stuff. There's just so many bad things happening to Jewish students on college campuses. I feel like we almost operated in a bubble back in like the you know mid to late aughts where like, At a school like Duke, you didn't have to be, like, super engaged on your Jewishness or on, like, Israel. Right. And But, you know, I did. Like, I went to the Ar Hillel Center, right? I went there quite a bit. I did a lot of holidays there. And you're right, though. We we did not engage with each other as Jews. Really, that was sort of a secondary aspect of all of our identities, I think. So will you walk me a little bit through, like, your upbringing in Texas, but being Israeli. Sure. Okay. So highlight reel of my life. It starts with a great story of my father being American, going to Israel when he was in his mid twenties, right after leaving the air force, meeting my mother an Israeli over there. Her family on her father's side has never left Israel. Her father was part of the Kohanim who never left after the destruction of the second temple. His cousin my grandfather's cousin, one of them, still runs a synagogue in Pekin, which has stones in it, which have been dated back 2,000 years ago. Oh, and my mom's mother came from Afghanistan. They were all expelled in the 50s when um, Israel became a state. So he meets my mother, who has no experience with United States or Americans, really. They fall in love, get married, and move over to the, the States. And they quickly moved to Fort Worth, Texas. My father worked in um, the defense industry. And there's a lot of that in Fort Worth. And I grew up there. I went to a very, very small school called the Fort Worth Hebrew Day School for elementary school. There were maybe four kids in my fourth grade class when we graduated. But it was a wonderful little bubble to grow up in. And I never felt any different um, because I grew up in that safe little bubble. And there were always Israelis coming in and out of Fort Worth because of all the, the defense contracting work that goes on there. We would go to Israel every summer for the whole summer. Day school got out, the day school started. And so I got to spend a lot of time with my family over there. Because my mother, as you know, I just mentioned, she's the only person who really left Israel. So all my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents are all over there. I speak Hebrew fluently, read it and write it. And that was my life for 18 years until I went to Duke and I, I met you. <laughs> and then you end up, I think I'm contractually obligated to say you went to Harvard Law School um, afterwards. Yes, that is. And now 
You're a big time lawyer. Yeah. You're back in Texas. You married David Slifer, my second cousin's nephew. Um, and bring mm-hmm. us to speed on what happens next. So uh, I married David. Uh, we we lived in New York for a while. We moved back to Dallas once we started talking about having kids. So now we've got two little girls and a third baby whose due date was a few days ago. And I'm sure by the time this airs, we'll find out who it is. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we've just been living in Dallas ever since. And we felt safe. We felt comfortable. And then I remember it was sometime late Friday, October 6th, early morning hours of October 7th. I'm very pregnant at that point. So I'm getting up many times a night to go to the bathroom and I just check my phone. All of a sudden I see all of these clips, terrorists jumping out of trucks in Israel and attacking people. And I will say that I am maybe more than your average person slightly desensitized to some of that because it's happened before. Um, There have been one-off suicide bombers. There have been, you know, one-off attacks here and there, but it's normally limited to one, two, three, maybe max four terrorists at a time and then it's quickly neutralized. But then the more I started scrolling through Instagram and the news, I saw that, no, this is a serious thing. And so I started texting my family had friends in Israel asking about what was going on. And unbeknownst to me at the same time, my mother had been texting her cousin who lives in Kibbutz Be'eri. And she said, we've heard the sirens for the rockets. And so we're all in the bomb shelter and we're safe. Don't worry about it. Well, you know, we kind of go to sleep, wake up, wake up in the morning and the news just gets worse and worse about what's happening. And it takes a while for us to fully comprehend the magnitude of what happened on October 7th in Israel. And then midway through the morning, my mother tells me, you know, I ask about, because I hear more news about Kibbutz Be'eri, where I know my mom's cousin Kineret lives with her husband. And I ask, you know, is she okay? And that's when she tells me, no, actually, they were taken hostage. And I remember I was sitting on my back patio. My girls were just playing and my husband was sitting next to me and I just started crying. And it was so disorienting to not know what was going on. I just, I just needed more information. For the next 48 hours, all I was doing was Googling Kibbutz Be'eri, Kibbutz Be'eri. And slowly but surely we found out that Kineret had been taken uh, the night before, because this was um, Shabbat, it was going to be Simchat Torah. The night before for Yom Shishi, Shabbat dinner, she had invited, Kineret and her husband Eshel had invited all of their kids over because everybody had been sort of traveling. Her son Alon had been in South Africa with his family. Her daughter Carmel had been in Turkey. And then her other son, Or, was also there. And so they invited everybody for a big Shabbat dinner and to spend the night at their house. So everybody except for Or spent the night at the house. and. When they woke up the next morning, there was the attack. And so my mom tells me, well, we know that Kineret was taken because we saw a video of her taken by the terrorists walking barefoot. Everybody sort of hid in different places in the house. Eshel was able to hide in the bathroom. There were gunshots through the bathroom, but he was he came out of that alive. The terrorists never found him. Hamas found Kineret's daughter, Carmel, who is maybe six or seven months older than me. We used to have sleepovers together as kids. And they took her. 
And then at the very end, they went back into the house and they went to the bomb shelter. And her son, Alon, ran out and said, I'm the last one. There's nobody else in here. Well, he was trying to protect his wife, Yarden, and their three-year-old daughter, Geffen, who were hiding. And the terrorists went in and found them too. And so at this point now, it's Saturday the 7th, and all we know is that everybody has been taken, except for Eshel. We learn the next day that Alon suddenly appears with his daughter, Geffen. Thank God. What it happened was they took Kinneret to one place. They took Carmel somewhere else. We don't know what happened to them quite at this point on the 8th. Alon and Yarden, three-year-old little Geffen, were taken in a car. Alon's hands zip-tied. They start driving them to the Gaza border. They throw another kibbutz member from Bayri in the trunk. And Alon says to Yarden, we need to escape. We got to get out of this. So the car stops at one point because they come across a tank and the terrorists get out to investigate. And Alon and Yarden look at each other and they know we have to make our escape now. Yarden grabs her daughter and Alon runs. They just run as fast as they can. And the terrorists start shooting after them and chasing them. And Yarden can't keep holding her daughter anymore. So she passes her off to her husband. The answer is still zip tied. And they split up to try to evade the terrorists. And alone hides with his three-year-old little girl all night and all day in a field with some trees. And he's able to make it back to the kibbutz the next day. But you don't know what happened to Yarden. And the next day, and for many days thereafter, alone has gone back to look for his wife and he can't find her anywhere. And we still don't know what happened to Carmel. And on the the ninth, I believe, or might have been still the afternoon of the eighth, I'm not quite sure. I was still, you know, looking for information and I was scrolling through the internet and um I found a video of hostages in Kibbutz Bayri and I decided to watch it. And I saw my mom's cousin Kinneret laying lifeless. Um they shot her. And just left her on the corner of the street in the kibbutz with other hostages. And the crazy part of it is that at that point, we still didn't have her body. I, 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 I'm I, the one who had to tell my mother and we told our family in Israel that we'd seen this video of her. And it wasn't until about a week later that we found her body. The terrorists had just taken it and thrown it. That's the only closure we've had so far is finding Kinneret's body. But... Carmel and Yarden may be hostages in Gaza. Um, we don't know if they're alive or dead. We don't know what's happened to them. And we are still hoping and praying for their return. Now, I have cousins in Israel, and I cannot imagine what this must be like for you. You've really done something amazing. You've, you've been on the news a bunch. You've been talking about this. How have you seen your role as an advocate for your family from all the way over here? So it's really changed. I'll say that I first posted something about my family because I wanted to get some awareness out immediately about what was happening because people in the U.S. needed to know that this was impacting the world. This is not just a problem that is thousands of miles away. It is impacting Americans too. They're also American hostages. They're hostages from every country. So I, at first I, I posted something about that. And then I had a lot of friends who are more in the media reach out to me and ask me if I would be willing to share um, my family's story and talk about it. And at first I will say I was hesitant to do so. It was also fresh and painful and I, I just didn't feel like sharing that trauma with the world. 
I, I just sort of wanted to compartmentalize it. But the more I thought about it and the more they convinced me to do it, I realized that it was very important to talk about this, especially as I saw the Hamas PR campaign getting stronger and stronger. And I knew that we had to talk about what was happening in Israel, especially considering how many people were just denying the atrocities that had occurred. And so I I went on Fox and Friends. I was on the Situation Room with Wolf Blitzer. I think I did a piece for a local radio station and Inside Edition and a couple of other things. Um, and the more I talked about it, the more I realized that this was reaching a very wide audience. And I'll, I'll just tell you a really great story of how far this story went. Um, there, there's this Uber driver in New York City who picks up a some 20-something-year-old woman, not overtly Jewish in any way, but she, but he has sort of an overtly Israeli name. And she spoke to him, and, and they both discovered they were Jewish, and she mentioned that she had just seen this girl on the news um, talking about her family and how touching it was and how much it made her realize the impact of what was going on in Israel. And then she mentioned my name. Well, this Uber driver happens to be related to my aunt's husband's sister and some kibbutz in Israel. He tells his sister, sister tells my my aunt's husband, my uncle, my uncle calls me and is like, look at how your story is just going around the world. And that's that was really touching to me. And so I knew that I was doing the right thing by getting out there and and talking about it. I will say I, I have gone through several stages, I think, of grief and emotions and feeling with what is going on at first. It was profound sadness. And um, I just wanted to separate from the world. And then it became, I need to talk about it to, to bring awareness. And now I am fully in the anger stage, um, seeing what is going on in college campuses and just in the streets, <laughs> you know, on the internet, it is unbelievable to the hatred and the anti-Semitism and the complete lack of awareness of so many people uh, across the world. It really is sickening. And I imagine when you have the personal connection, we all have a personal connection, but when you know that it's your family in there, you're just like, what? Like, I, 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 I don't know what to do when I see people who I, you know, nominally respect just reposting things and just giving in to just like the dumbest misinformation campaign. And I, I just I find it revolting. I can't imagine how much more so you find this knowing, you know, just the horrors firsthand. I will say <laughs> the, the silver lining of all of this is I think I have done a pretty darn good job picking my friends and acquaintances because I have yet to see any person that I actually know post something on social media that is anti-Israel or anti-Jew in any way, which is shocking to me because I talk to a lot of my friends who who had the same reaction as you. They're seeing lots of people fall for this PR campaign that they personally are friends with, and that's very hurtful to them. Uh, I guess I just have a, a, <laughs> a good bullshit meter, if we could say that. But um, I, I really, nobody that I personally know has posted anything that has upset me in any way, which is great. It is, it is at least, at least there is that form of relief for me. 
but seeing like, I mean, I'm going to straight call it a pogrom in Russia at the airport, right? They, they went and talked Jews at the woman who was just stabbed in Lyon in France. Um, the, the people in New York city ripping down posters of children who are taken hostage with no remorse. All of this, even though I don't know these people, it's, it is, it is astounding to me, especially, especially the sorts of people who, if they stepped one toe into Gaza, would be executed on the spot. That is the most astounding thing. That they are out there supporting the very people who are calling for their own death and distress. I don't understand that. I, I just, that, that, that is something fundamentally broken in these people. So can I ask how you're holding up on a personal level? I mean, you have young daughters who are old enough to sort of sense, I imagine, that something's going on with mom. You're incredibly pregnant right now. I, I just... How are you both doing this advocacy work, taking care of yourself, cluing in your family? I imagine checking in all the time on all your different family members here and over in Israel. How, how, are, how are you holding up on that front? You know, I like to say that there's a reason that um, Gal Gadot, an Israeli woman, was tapped to play that role because Israeli women, I think, were just built different. There is an attitude of yalla, you know, like we just, we just have to do it. There are things you just have to do, right? I will say that my girls have given me such hope and joy during this time. Um, this new baby, God willing, that is on the way is the future of Israel. You know, I, I am directly growing the Jewish people, which has given me a lot of hope and strength even though I'm very, very pregnant and very tired. You know, I've still been working a lot. It, it feels good to feel productive. But there's just another part of me that is like, this is just what you have to do. You know, I think a lot about the book of Esther. And when things get difficult for Esther, Mordechai says to her, you know, relief may come from elsewhere, right? But who knows, maybe you've been made for a time such as this. And, and I, I think to myself, right, like this, this is my time. I have to act. I have to put one foot in front of the other. I have to say something. I cannot stay silent. And there is just, I, I just have to, yala, you know, I just have to do it. I just have to get on. When you think about Carmel and Yarden, I mean, what do you wish they know right now? What would you say to them? Well, first to Yarden, I would, I hope she knows that her husband and daughter are safe. As a mother, you think a lot about your kids before yourself. And I just hope that Yarden at least knows that her daughter is safe and loved. And for both of them, I hope they know that the whole world is fighting for their return. They're not alone, that we're trying to come and get them. And the most heartening thing is seeing how the state of Israel has said, and the IDF basically said to the world, you can either come with us, you can join us in this fight, but we are not stopping no matter what. So if you're not with us, fine, we'll do it on our own. And and that, above all else, is such an important thing for Jews who don't live in Israel to realize why the state of Israel is so important. Because if we did not have our own country, if we did not have our own military, it would be just like the Holocaust all over again. And so Israel is such an important piece and should be such an important piece of every Jew's identity, no matter where they live. Israel is protecting Judaism for all of us. Leo, I'm sending you so much love. 
thinking of you and your family. And I'm so grateful for everything that you're doing. I feel so lucky to be connected to you in so many different ways. And I think it does show how we are all connected, right? You know, we always joke that everyone in Israel is like a few degrees separate from each other. We really, really saw that in the aftermath of everything that happened. But I think it's true for all of us Jews. And so I feel I feel lucky to to know you and to have you as a friend. You're so sweet, Stephanie. And have you as family too. Yes, family. <laughs> can I can I also tell you that I also know the other Leo independently? I heard of you? this yeah. recently. <laughs> We're airing this, by the way. He's like, I was like, I really want to talk to this, the, my first Liel. And, and he was just like, oh, Liel in Dallas? And I was like, <laughs> yes. How 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 do you know each other? It's amazing. It's a perfectly small world. And it feels right that my the two Liels in my life know each other. Yeah, I think we're like the only two Liels in the United States. Because <laughs> he's, yeah, he insists it's a totally made up name. And I was like, it's not made up. I know another one. Yeah, and I'll tell you what, <laughs> I have heard of one other one. I remember I was in Israel at a playground. And I heard a little boy, his mother was calling him, he was named Liel. But other than us three, I have never heard of another Liel. That is some serious kinship. Um, (laughs) Well, I hope to see you soon. And I'm just thinking all the best thoughts for you and your family right now. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I'm so grateful to Liel for sharing her story with us. I also want to report that since we've spoken, Liel gave birth to her third daughter, Noah Kineret. She's named for Liel's late cousin, Kineret, and also born on her birthday. Mazel tov, Liel and family. We're so happy for this bit of joy. Mazel tov. Liel Leibovitz, please start us off with Mazel tovs. The other Liel on this episode, weirdly. I have a huge Mazel tov to my dear friends at Chabad. This Sunday, I attended my absolute favorite event of the year. It's Chabad's Kinnus HaShluchim, where all the Chabad Shluchim, all the emissaries who do such amazing work every day in all corners of the world, come. They gather in one place. It is becoming increasingly harder to find one place that will contain them. Currently, there's precisely one very, 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 very large industrial space in New Jersey, that is the only one in the tri-state area that that will contain so many incredible people. And they put up, as always, a celebration of soulfulness, spiritedness, and Jewish pride. Mazel tov, brothers. And my mazel tov, Joshua Molina. Josh Molina is nice. I want to give you a shout out for what ah. you're doing. It's selfless. Oh, it's thank you. it's big. It's just it's self-aggrandizing. I was going to say it's selfless. It has your name and an adjective and the title. <laughs> it's everything. I think for a lot of us, it's easy to get like stuck in the drama of our days and our lives and whatever's going on with us. And so I, I'm always impressed when I hear people who are doing something bigger than themselves while also naming it after themselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I add a mazel. Thank you to everybody who joined me. Now, I will say I may be, I'm probably on the low end of giving in terms of my team members. Some of my team members have given gallons and gallons and gallons of blood. So I salute them. Are there any you would like to shame right now into giving more? (laughs) No, no, not yet. Maybe in future episodes. Yeah. None of them. They're all good. Okay. (laughs) If you don't keep it up, guys. All right, Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Leah Leibovitz and Joshua Molina. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, and Jerome Roske, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana LaRosa. 
Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo is by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. We love to hear from you. Send us emails at unorthodoxtabamag.com or leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Until next week, shalom, friends. Shalom.